I'm going to drink a lot of Budweiser tonight, Tracy. I promise you that. Peyton Manning gets to go out on a high note. The Denver Broncos win Super Bowl 50. This is the Boomer Bust Podcast. I am your host, Pat Egan, along with a very chipper Charlie O'Connor. How you doing, man? I'm in a great mood. I mean, that aside from the Super Bowl not being that fun to watch, the outcome was everything I was hoping for, so I'm, I'm in a pretty good mood. It was, if you're a Denver Broncos fan or if you were a, a Peyton Manning fan, which I know you are, that was the perfect scenario. He goes out on a high note. Kisses Papa John. We get Eli Manning face, <laughs> and Eli, then and then that that to me was one of the highlights. Just, sorry to interrupt, but that to me was one of the highlights of the entire Super Bowl. Granted, it wasn't that fun of a Super Bowl to watch, but seeing Eli Manning up in the uh, up in the luxury box, realizing that he no longer can shove it in his brother's face at Thanksgiving dinner, that he has more Super Bowl rings than him, like. I've never seen someone who should be happy for a family member look that disappointed. And I don't know if I ever will in the rest of my life. You you could tell. I, I, all right, I shouldn't say you could tell, but it looked like from his face that he was didn't didn't think the Broncos had a shot in hell. But then again, it's Eli Manning's face. So, you yeah, know, that may just be know, like his normal. He's in his own little world. Yeah. It's adorable. Uh, and then, of course, you had the new I'm going to Disneyland, which is I'm going to go drink Budweiser. Lots of Budweiser. Yeah, what was up with that? I don't know. It, 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 it makes me sad because, I mean, I know you're not you're not a beer person. Budweiser's not a good beer. It's like, come that's on, what, that's come what on a couple, Peyton. You got to be better than that. A couple that. people told me that, that Budweiser is just not that that great. Um, if they want to pay for advertising, they're, they're our favorite beer. But um, it was kind of a genius move. Apparently, you're not allowed to uh, promote beer if you're in the NFL. But he... Could be retiring. He's probably retired. Probably retired. You got right. you got to think he will retire. And he owns beer distributors in Denver that are Budweiser beer distributors. So it was a geniusing marketing ploy by him to also have Papa John down there. Just get them all in. Uh, I don't. I, the only thing he missed was riding off on a Buick on you know like in the stadium. But that would have been interesting. Let's get to the game. The Broncos pull it out. They were, I believe, six-point underdogs. Yeah, like five and a half, something like that. Yeah. What did you see? I, I thought it was an extremely boring game. I I think you agree. I think a lot of people agree. It, it was a really choppy game. And I, I guess we should have predicted it because I think everybody knew that Manning wasn't going to play that well. I don't think anybody really had the expectations that he was going to go out there and, and be the Manning of old. Um, the big thing was, could Cam Newton move the Panthers against the Denver defense, which has looked so good all year, and then especially in the postseason, especially against Tom Brady in the AFC Championship game. And really what ended up happening was just the Denver defense just owned Newton and that offense all game. And because of that, Peyton had no reason to take any risks. Like, I, I think if... If the Panthers would have moved the ball a little bit more consistently, we would have seen Manning take more shots. He would have had to. In the beginning of the uh, of the Patriots game, Manning took some shots because he felt like he had to. He felt like he had to put points on the board to beat to beat Tom Brady because it's Tom Brady and the Patriots. In this game, once the first quarter got done, and I think the Broncos just in general realized, like, God, Newton can't do a thing against this defense. Von Miller is owning him, and DeMarcus Ware is not doing much worse. Then he realized, well, we can just hand the ball off pretty much on every every drive. And if we go three and out, who cares? Because they're not scoring either. So I think that it, it was it was strategy on the part of the Broncos and then just pure frustration and ineptitude on the part of the Panthers. And I'll kind of use that as a segue because this has become you know the big story, I guess, aside from 
Manning winning a Super Bowl and possibly going off into the sunset. But really the big story today has been Cam Newton and the amount of criticism he's received in certain parts of, of the country, certain parts of the media world, first for his poor performance, second for a perceived lack of effort, specifically on that fumble recovery, and then third, and arguably this is the thing that's been, been parroted the most, is the uh, the post-game press conference where he left mid-conference and was clearly very frustrated and, and, and did not really feel like being there and then just basically got the hell out of Dodge. So I'm curious to hear your opinion on Cam Newton and kind of, you know, is this overblown? Does he deserve the criticism? Like, what are your thoughts here? The criticism for Cam Newton is the biggest horse shit I've ever heard, all right? People love getting on this guy because he dabs, he smiles, right? Does the thing. He's, he showboats, apparently. But then when he loses, it's like, well, he's got to lose with class. I love that argument. He's got to lose with class. What the hell does that mean? He has to lose with class. I hate to break it to all of you Cam Newton haters. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the biggest hot take in the history of hot takes. Here we go. Winning is fun. And losing sucks. It sucks. It sucks when you work your entire life for something. You strive for one goal. And then your performance was terrible. You weren't expecting to lose. And like 20 minutes after you just lost the biggest thing in your entire life, you have to answer questions about why you lost that thing. Don't give me this crap that other people have done it. Don't give me Russell Wilson did it last season because he already had a ring. All right. We forget that in sports, these people are humans. They're not robots. And I actually, I actually like the fact that Cam Newton gave one-word answers that he walked off because that's a guy who is pissed off that he lost. He's not going to sit there and smile and joke around. We ripped Donovan McNabb for years in this city because Donovan would smile during losses, right? We hated that. We wanted Donovan to be as pissed off as we are. And those same people are now ripping Cam Newton because he gave one-word answers. By the way, I'm sick of hearing people say he didn't answer questions at the post. He did. He gave one word answer. He's not going to write a freaking soliloquy for people. He's not going to go in depth. 30 minutes ago, he just lost the biggest thing in his entire life. He's not going to come out and go, well, gee shucks, man. I mean, guess they just had our number today. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to be pissed off. And I actually like the fact that my players are pissed off. If I was a Carolina Panthers fan, I'd much rather have that than a guy go, Oh, well, you know, I mean, I guess they had our number today, but hey, we'll be back. No, F that, okay? Also, that people are forgetting, if you look at the audio, if you listen to the audio, you can clearly hear when he walks off Chris Harris Jr. loudly in the background talking about their game plan to stop Cam Newton. The NFL, we've talked about this, they're, they're, they're a nightmare, a publicity nightmare. They, they are absolutely clueless on what to do, right? Through... Through a, a myriad of things, they have no idea what's going on. So in their infinite wisdom, okay, they decide, let's have the losing team and let's have the winning team hold press conferences in the same room. What could go wrong? Well, all right, I'll, I'll bring it down to a real-world thing since apparently everybody that's ripping Cam Newton is like the most upstanding member of society who would handle themselves wonderfully after a loss. If you are going for a job interview, all right, you've been waiting for this your entire life. You you write for Broad Street Hockey, 
But say the Philadelphia Flyers came calling, right? And they needed a GM. Hypothetical, I know. But you've been working for this your entire life. You want to be GM. And you go in and you bomb the interview. And then you have to walk right out and, he, and, and answer a bunch of questions about why you bombed the interview. And then five minutes into it, the guy who got the job <laughs> is standing right next to you answering similar questions about why he was better than you. Oh, yeah, I would love to sit there and answer those questions. God, who won it? Get a freaking joke, people. The guy showed emotion. I, I understand if you don't like him, if you hated the fact that he smiled, did the dab, this and that. But don't rip the guy because he gave one word answering. He needs to be professional. No F that, all right? Have, has anybody that, that ripped him ever played sports? Because I hate losing. I hate it. After every one of my, my freaking beer league hockey game losses, I'm pissed off. That is beer league hockey. That's supposed to be fun. I pay to play that. I don't get paid. Cam Newton gets paid to play football, and he played it horrendously in the biggest game of his life. And we want him to sit there and go into great detail about why he sucked and have to listen to the guy who beat him go into detail about why he got beaten. Yeah, I, I can't figure out why Cam Newton uh, walked off the stage. And if, by the way, watch the video because you can tell that Cam Newton is listening to Chris Harris Jr. Basically game plan of how they beat him, and that's when he walks off. I, I, the, the, the reaction to Cam Newton losing is making me the biggest Cam Newton fan. I'm going to walk around the center city and just dabbing all over the place because it's, it's his def- me defending him is making me such a... And I came into this not a huge Cam Newton fan, but the criticism because he didn't get up there and act like, you know, all these great Hall of Fame quarterbacks because he's supposed to be like them. Tom Brady made the media wait 45 minutes. He, he, he had a cool down. He let it sink in. And that's a guy who has more Super Bowl rings than I think anybody. And he just sat there for 45 minutes. Uh, he composed himself. And then he went out and addressed the media. Cam Newton had to wait like 20 minutes. He didn't get a chance to cool down. What was your take on it? Well, it's going to be a pretty tough act to follow. Not going to lie, Pat. So thank you. I appreciate you uh, you bringing the fire today for our podcast. Um, it's funny. I came into this. Actually, I, I like Cam Newton. Um so I I probably came into liking Cam Newton more than you, more than you to be honest. I I'm, I'm I'm mostly in agreement, I think. Um it's it's really tough for me to get on players that are clearly angry after losses because I agree. You you want you want your quarterback, you want your players to be frustrated with in a game like that and he didn't play well. Like he did not play well and he really had nobody to blame but himself because on numerous occasions he missed throws. On numerous occasions, he had happy feet in the pocket and not happy feet in the sense that he's running for first downs, but just panicked because Von Miller and DeMarcus Ware were teeing off on him. And he was frustrated as hell. And could he have acted better in the press conference? Yeah, probably. Sure, he could have He could have answered the questions. He could have you know, stayed for the whole thing. But it's, it's not something I, I'm going to really hold against him because I think it's a very human reaction. I get why people don't like Cam Newton. I do, and I, and I, I'm not. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, look, I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with the with the dancing and and the showboating one. I I have no issue with that at all. But I get, and, and I don't think some people basically say like, oh well, you know, the only reason why you don't like him is the race thing. And it, it, there, I'm sure there are people. I think there's a huge I, part. I, of I'm that. sure there are people that don't like him because of the race thing. But I also think there are people that just 
do not like showboaters, regardless of whether they're white or black. So I think there, I think there are people out there that don't like Newton because they think he's, you know, he's too flamboyant, he's too demonstrative on the field. I get that, I do. But this is a guy who just, as you said, lost the biggest game of his career, and he probably expected to win because he was going against Peyton Manning, who's clearly at the end of his career. Exactly, like in a, a, an offense in Denver that was nothing special. And he figured, I I can get twenty points on this defense. Not it's not gonna be easy, but I can do it. Yeah, what, and they went out there and just got just got torched. What player enters the Super Bowl thinking I'm gonna lose? He entered the game as the MVP. He's on cloud nine. He's thinking I am gonna go out. I'm gonna cap off this season. I'm gonna have a national championship, a JUCO championship, and a Super Bowl. And he lost. And he gets labeled a quote sore loser. I love that. No, you know who's a sore loser? Bill freaking Belichick is a sore loser. Every time that guy loses, he runs the hell off the field. Look at the pictures, go on Twitter, do some freaking research, and you'll clearly see Cam Newton addressing Peyton Manning on the field and smiling. You can tell he has respect for Peyton. He's happy for Peyton. But don't expect him to be happy that he lost. Whereas Bill Belichick, try finding him after a loss. Be the, be the other coach and try finding him. You, you have a, an easier time finding the Malaysian airplane more so than finding Bill Belichick after he just lost a game. And that's a guy who has plenty of Super Bowl rings. But no, Cam Newton's a sore loser because he didn't want to answer the Denver press, the, 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 the Rocky Mountain Registry's question about <laughs> what you think went wrong. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's a joke. And yeah, I do. I, I think a huge part of it is, is racism. I do. I don't want to get on the political train, but I'm telling you, I, I, I've worked enough at a sports radio station. I've heard the calls. And I think a huge part of it is that people don't like him because he's flamboyant and he does the dab. And yeah, I think it's because he's black. I think a huge part of it is because he's black. And do, does that mean that everybody that calls up and criticizes him, that's a white person that criticizes him doing the dancing like Aaron Rodgers? No, it doesn't. It doesn't, but you have to sit there and say that the media painted Cam Newton as a flamboyant, um, showboating guy, and then Aaron Rodgers is sitting there doing the discount double check all over the place. J.J. Watt does dancing. J.J. Watt defended Cam Newton on Twitter and said, it's, if he wants to dance, do it. He wasn't dabbing on first downs, right? Like, I, I hate when Brent Selleck does the first down marker, and they're down by, like, 15. He didn't once dab. When Mike Tolbert went in the end zone, he didn't dab. Okay, so stop with the, well, you know, if you want to dab and they um, just stop him in the end zone, then you won't dab. And, uh, you know, now he's a sore loser. No, he didn't dab. No, okay? I, I, and I agree with that. I think that it would have been a lot more. I, here, here's what I would have had a problem with. And this didn't happen because, again, you saw it in the postgame press conference how ticked off he was. If, like, they would have had a good play in, like, the fourth quarter where they're losing and he dances. Yes. Like, they, yes. That, that would have annoyed me because it would have been like— And that would have annoyed me. Like, you're losing. You, you shouldn't be happy. Be happy if you're, like, if you get a really big touchdown that ties the game. Then, you know, dance to your heart's content. But don't don't dance when your team's losing. And he didn't. And he showed why he wasn't dancing because he was really ticked off. And he showed that by the post-game press conference. He didn't want to talk to anybody. I don't know who it was. Somebody hit me up on Twitter because I was just going off about it. I couldn't believe people were ripping Cam Newton for—, for basically not being a robot and giving cookie-cutter answers. Um, and somebody said, look, I don't know what I want him, to, I expect him to do, um, but basically, like, I, I just, I expect him to do more than that. Like, I, and I actually respected the guy for saying, like, 
I have a problem with it. I don't really know why, but I kind of do. And and um, I don't know. I don't have a, an answer for what I expect him to do. The reason being, none of us are ever going to be in a Super Bowl. If you're listening to this, I'm sorry to break the news to you. Unless you play a major college football, the odds of you being in a Super Bowl are slim to none. So none of us know exactly how that felt. And that's what I love. The people that were like getting on me about it have nine to five jobs. Nothing wrong with that. But you don't know what it's like to have that, that, that thing ri- ripped from you and then have to be like grilled on a podium as the guy who beat you is like on cloud nine screaming about how they beat him. I mean, it's one. Chris Harris is a loud guy. Yeah, you can is. clearly make out what he's saying. We stacked the box. We decided to make him throw. I mean, that's just what you want to hear, right? I mean, we all have pride, but more so like quarterbacks probably have the most pride. And he has to sit there and hear, oh, well, we decided that we're just going to stack the box and make him throw because him throwing can't beat us. Yeah, that's, that's, that, I mean, I would love to sit there and, and hear that. I mean, it'd be the equivalent of your girlfriend dumping you. And then you have to sit there and answer questions on why she dumped you. And then five feet away, she's sitting there going, well, he wasn't that good in bed. You know, he lived at home with his mom. He had this weird thing where he always wore sweatpants. And you're sitting there like, man, I don't want to take this. (laughs) So he got up and let. He didn't pull a beast mode. Thanks for asking. Yes. He didn't blow off the press conference. He didn't pull a Russell Westbrook. He gave one-word answers. At one point, he did He did say, look, they were the better team today. But the criticism for Cam Newton, go swim in a lake. If you're criticizing Cam Newton, go swim in a freaking lake. It is absurd. It is freaking absurd. I'm going to try to uh, to try to cool down. because It really does piss me off that people are, are criticizing him, obviously. I will say, I do expect him. He said we'll be there back here next year. I do expect him back. And it dawned on me before the game, this Carolina team is so good, and they're doing it without Kelvin Benjamin. And when, like, they're doing it with receivers Ted Ginn, Philly Brown. Most people don't even know Jericho Cotri's still in the lead, but he's catching balls. And they basically did all of this with a tight end and a bunch of who's, who are they's. You know, the, the Eagles uh, wide receiver core in 2002. Imagine how good they're going to be when Kelvin Benjamin comes back. That that's gonna be, that's gonna be a dominant dominant team. No, they're they're a power, and it, it really is all gonna come down to Cam Newton because he more than he's, he's a deserving MVP more than anybody else, especially in the second half of the year. He elevated that team, and he took a team an offense that on paper really doesn't look that good. Jonathan Stewart is not that good of a running back. The wide receivers are not very good. Greg Olson is is a very good tight end. He's probably top five in the league, but. You know, we God, we remember back when what L.J. Smith was the best weapon on the Eagles before they got T.O. Like, if 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 your best player on your offense, aside from your quarterback, is is your tight end, and that tight end isn't named Rob Gronkowski or Jimmy Graham, your offense is probably pretty bad on paper. And Cam Newton turned it into a really great offense. So if he doesn't regress, yeah, I find it really difficult to to imagine them not consistently being in Super Bowl contention for the next four or five years. The big thing is. Can he continue this? And it's always, granted, he's a big guy, so he probably shouldn't wear down, but running quarterbacks, there's always the injury concern. There's always the worry that, you know, do they take a a rough hit on the knee, tear an ACL, whatever, and that's always the worry. Although Cam this year took a big step forward as a passer, so maybe as he gets older, he'll stay in the pocket more and just dominate through the air. 
we'll see. But it'll it'll be fun to watch, and I, I really do hope that in the next few years that he gets that championship and he does it without changing the way he is. Like I hope he I hope he doesn't yeah. he doesn't quote unquote mature and stop having fun, and then people can say, oh well, he only won a championship when he matured. No, I want him to win and win being himself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hate that he he's not mature. Why? Because because he was angry after a loss. Because he dances. Because he smiles. Because he has fun playing the game. Because he gives kids to foot, footballs to kids. Like, I I, I don't get if, if you don't like Cam Newton because you think he was shady in college. All right, I mean, it's time to get over it. But all right, I get it. I don't like Cam Newton when he plays the Eagles. If you want to criticize Cam Newton's Super Bowl performance. Totally fair. Totally fair. Okay. What he was thinking on that fumble, I don't know. And to be quite frank, I um, I use the term athlete loosely because, God, I'm terrible at most sports. But I have had experiences in my own life where uh, I'm playing a game and I just freeze. And I don't know what the hell. And I, and I get back to the bench and I'm like, what were you thinking? Like, you could have dove and got the puck in. You could have, uh, you know, something. I don't know what was going through his head. And I'm sure looking back on it, he's probably thinking the same thing. It's probably like the 40-year-old virgin when he says a bag of sand and then he's driving home. He's like, a bag of sand? Come on. That's what you come up with? So it's probably a situation like that. Um, But this team is going to be really good and especially because it's looking like the greatest coach of all time, Sean McDermott, will be back with them. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Nobody wanted him. I can't believe it. Let me. I, I'm going to go on a quick rant. We're we're going to talk uh, talk Eagles shortly with Matt Lombardo from NJ.com. Uh, he he'll join us to talk the latest with the Eagles stuff. But people are still wrapped up that they didn't hire Sean McDermott because Sean McDermott was like the sexy name. He was quote unjustly fired when he was here. He was replaced by an offensive line coach. He kind of gets a bad rap if you will a lot of people see it like that do people realize that the guy who the eagles hired who they ripped by the way because nobody quote wanted to hire him the only team that interviewed sean mcdermott was the browns does that tell you anything i mean if this guy is such a good coach if he is such an amazing commodity that philadelphia fans think he is why was it that the only team to hire him is arguably the most dysfunctional football team in the world in the Cleveland Browns. The Eagles didn't hire him. The other coaching vacancies didn't hire him. The only team to hire, I'm sorry, to interview him. The only team to interview him was the Browns. What does that tell you about Sean McDermott's stock in the NFL? Doesn't sound like it's pretty high. Just wrap your head around that next time you're like, I can't believe they didn't sign Sean McDermott as their coach. You know what it is, and this is, it, it, honestly, it's a similar concern that you have with Peterson. Peterson was the offensive coordinator under an offensively oriented head coach in Andy Reid. So the question is, okay, well, how much how much control did he really have over the Kansas City offense versus Reid? Well, the exact same thing applies to the Panthers. Ron Rivera is a defensively oriented coach, and Sean McDermott is his defensive coordinator. How much of how much of that good defense do you attribute to Sean McDermott? How much you attribute to Ron Rivera and his concepts? Like that's the, it, 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 maybe McDermott would have been the better choice. I don't know. The thing is, no one knows with these with, knows. with coaches. Yeah. But in terms of resume, 
his resume to me was no more impressive than Peterson's. You know me. If I'm wrong, if if Sean McDermott gets hired next year, which if you figure the defense continues the way they were, they are, he will. He'll get a head coaching job. If he gets hired next year and he lights the world on fire and he becomes the next great coach, if he becomes Bruce Arians, Bill Belichick, other good coaches that I can't think of right now, I'll admit I, I was wrong. I'll be the first. I mean, nobody nobody reminds uh, people that I thought I that I thought the Flyers should have taken Simeon Varlamov other over Claude Giroux more than me. I love to remind people how much I'm wrong, but the hype over Sean McDermott, the the love affair of Sean McDermott in this city, and ripping Doug Peterson. Like you're ripping Doug Peterson because he came from Andy Reid's tree, and you're reverting back to Andy Reid when you had Andy Reid. I kind of get that, but don't rip Doug Peterson because he wasn't interviewed by anybody else when he was interviewed by one team, and that was the Eagles. He got the job. Sean McDermott was interviewed by one team, and he didn't get the job. They both were interviewed by one team. They both weren't hot coaching candidates. Stop acting like one's so much better than the other. Pump the brakes and relax. Well, after we complain about Cam Newton, let's talk about the winning quarterback in the game, Peyton Manning, who... Brock Osweiler. Brock Osweiler. Well, I mean, we definitely agree that Manning didn't have a fantastic game by any means. He didn't have to do a lot. He threw an interception, drove him down the field a few times, did enough to win, but didn't have a fantastic game. To me, the the real question that comes out of this, and and I'm curious to hear your opinion because I have a pretty strong opinion about this. I, oh, I, I've always had a pretty strong opinion about this, but what does this game do, if anything? The fact that now he has two Super Bowl rings, even though this one he really didn't do a lot, but he still got the ring. What does it do to his legacy, and what does it do to kind of how he, he rates in the, the pantheon of quarterbacks? Man, does it do anything? Nothing. Yeah, no, for me, it restores his legacy. I, I don't think his legacy was tarnished, but it was always, well, he's a loser who was an amazing regular season quarterback, got in the playoffs, choked. And I said this last week, I find it hilarious and kind of um, ironic that in his worst season ever is the year he wins a Super Bowl. After all those years of being a dominant quarterback and kind of choking or just getting running into a, a bad luck situation, this is the year that he wins a Super Bowl. At the end of the day, if you look back on five years, yeah, a couple people will say, well, he won by defense. But thanks to Trent Dilfer, he's not going to be the worst quarterback to win a Super Bowl. and. When you look back on his legacy, he has two rings, numerous amount of records, arguably the greatest quarterback in the regular season. His legacy is a first ballot Hall of Famer, although who knows with the way that uh, they do things. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. But I, I, I think I, I was happy for him. I, I didn't really have a dog in the fight, but I was happy that Peyton could go out on top. He looked like Dan Marino in his last season. Like he had no zip on the ball. It was kind of embarrassing. And I was happy that the defense rallied to get him that second ring because he he deserved it, I feel like, for a while. The last Super Bowl performance was dreadful. But you can't argue with two Super Bowl rings. As I said earlier, it's it's hard to get to one and win it. And he got to, I think, three or four. I think he got to four, right? He got to four, yeah. He won he won two, lost yeah, two. Yeah, beat the Bears, won this one, You're and not, lost to the Saints. Yeah, I'm not field. gonna I'm not gonna disregard fifty percent in the Super Bowl. So whether he played amazing or not, he gets a ring, and that's, I think, only going to help his legacy. Yeah, and the way I looked at it after the game, and I am freely admit I'm a big Peyton Manning fan. Uh, for years, the Colts were my second favorite team when it was Manning to Harrison. I still like the Colts, but I'm, I'm a big Peyton guy. And 
what I'll say is that there were more than a few years where I felt like I, I, I felt to my, I felt that he had a Super Bowl pretty much on lockdown, it seemed like, considering the strength of the team and how well he was playing, and, and it was almost like the fates were conspiring against him. I think back to the year when the Colts were by far the best team in the league and Ben Roethlisberger gets the miracle tackle on Nick Harper returning Jerome Bettis' fumble for a touchdown, and then Mike Vanerjack misses the game-tying field goal. Then I think to the, uh, I think it was Jacoby Jones with the, the Hail Mary against against Baltimore, the year that Denver looked really good in the second half of the year. So the way I looked at it is, okay, probably should have at least gotten one Super Bowl out of those two years, so let's just say, okay, this one is kind of making up for the fact that both those years, like, he had the worst luck in the world and couldn't come through with one. At the same time, I actually don't think it helps his legacy at all for me, but that's because for me going, for me, I thought he was the best quarterback in NFL history even prior to this. So, like, to me, this game, yeah, I guess if he would have lost it and played terribly, I probably would have had to, you know, downgrade him a bit, but him winning, it just kind of keeps him where he is for me, and I I, I understand the, the, the arguments against him. I understand the, you know, there was there was games in the playoffs he didn't come through and the two guys who get who get placed ahead of him regularly um, there's others that some people some people will say Favre some people will say Elway but the two guys that consistently end up above Manning in the the top ten best QBs of all time are, are Joe Montana and Tom Brady those, those are probably the consensus you I, I I think generally you hear Manning probably in like the three four five range I would say yeah I agree um, and it's just it, it's tough for me to compare him to Montana. Because I didn't watch Montana. I, I can look at the stats. I can look at the, the Super Bowls and whatnot. I watched Brady. And I go back and forth with them. Because I, I, I want to I believe that Peyton's a better quarterback. And I, and I, I fall on the side that he is. I get why people, why, why people go with Brady. But what I always go back to is this. With, with the Brady-Manning debate. is Undeniably, Manning's the, best, the better quarterback in the regular season. And their playoff stats are... Like statistically, not from everything except record, their statistics are pretty much identical. Just Brady has the better record. Manning now is one game over 500 in his playoff record. Brady is significantly above that. But the way I've described why I take Manning over Brady is I can actually buy that if you, if you, because one of the thought experiments always is well, if you had, if you had to pick one quarterback to win a game, would you pick Brady or Manning? And I think I would probably pick Brady because Brady had, even, even when they were both in their primes, I think Brady had more physical ability than Manning. I think he had a stronger arm. I think he could make more throws than Manning could. Manning never had the ridiculous arm. It was a good arm. He could, he could make all the throws. but He had phenomenal footwork. Yeah, but, but Brady, Brady could rock it in there more than Manning. And Brady always did seem more at ease in those situations. I agree. I, I, I don't think it was as dramatic as some people say because – Brady had the great start to his career. He went 9-0 in his first three seasons. But that was probably, they were probably like his worst three quarterbacking seasons. Then he gets really good and his record goes down, which kind of leads me to believe that a lot of playoff success is really dependent on your team. But the way I look at it is, even though I would probably take Brady in one game, to win one game, if, you, if I was starting a team, if I was starting an expansion team, I would pick Manning over Brady for the team because I think Manning could make something out of nothing more than Brady could. Are we talking about a championship game? Like one game? Yeah, I guess game. so. Yeah, for, for the one oh, game well, thing. if I'm going one game, Otto Graham. Otto Graham. Well, yeah, he never, Ten lost, championships. never lost a championship game. I mean, his clutchness is the most underrated <laughs> thing in sports I've ever seen, and he did it wearing a unitard. Um, 
I, I, I agree. If you're starting a franchise, I go Manny. And, and the, one of the reasons why I do is because you look at the one thing you, you have to account for with Brady, and I don't think it's a strike against him because he didn't choose it, but he played his whole career with Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick's one of the best coaches of all time. Tony Dungy was a very good coach. Not Bill Belichick, but a, a very good coach. And then Manning goes to a Super Bowl with Jim Caldwell. So basically, Manning was the quarterback and coach of that team. Because yeah. anybody watched Jim Caldwell knew he didn't do a damn thing as head coach of that team. And now this time he has Gary Kubiak, and this was pretty much the defense. But Manning was able to basically play coach and QB on a team. And you saw how bad the Colts were the year he got hurt. They were the worst team they got Andrew Luck. Brady, I don't think, had the ability to basically dominate an offense and elevate them to the degree Manning did, even though I think if you put both of them on equally good teams, Brady may win more big games. But that, to me, to me I don't think you can... I think with Manning, he's if you get into the playoffs enough, you're going to win. You're going to win some Super Bowls. And that's what happened. He got into the playoffs enough where he racked up some Super Bowls. He was in a bunch of them. Whereas, I think if you put Brady on a 4-12 and team, I think he maybe makes them 8-8. Eight and eight. I think if you put Manning on a 4-12 and team, I think he makes them 11-5 and five and makes them a contender. Well, we're going to transition from two future Hall of Fame quarterbacks to... Likely, I would say, a third in Nick Foles, who might be coming back to town. We bring on Eagles beat reporter from NJ.com, Matt Lombardo. Matt, how you doing? Pat, thanks for having me on the podcast. Glad to be here. It's it's exciting stuff, man. It's breaking ground over here, having you on. First person. You know what? Anytime that I can elevate the level of football discussion on this podcast, I'm happy to do it. Oh, that's and we, so we're gonna have to have you on very regularly. Yeah, I was gonna say that, that that's a tough a tough card. So, yeah, considering yeah. how bad my selections were this year in uh, Eagles games. Uh, but uh, off season has begun with the Super Bowl ending. A lot of Eagles stuff to get to. Report comes out from Adam Schefter that the Eagles will not franchise Sam Bradford, and we could have a return of Nikki franchise. What are you hearing on that front, and what do you think of it? Yeah, Pat, it's interesting. That story broke yesterday on Super Bowl Sunday, and, and Adam Schefter knows that that's the biggest audience of the year. He knows all eyes are on that ESPN pregame show. So when you hear that type of a report, you, you kind of realize there's some backing to it. And I did some digging around, talking to a couple of sources I know, and a source close to Doug Peterson, who's familiar with his thinking, basically came right out and told me today that Peterson loves Nick Foles, that he's very high on him, and he's going to make a play to bring him back. Now, what I thought was also interesting is that you look at the franchise tag, $20.25 million. That's a lot of money for one year for Sam Bradford. So that, in all likelihood, as Schefter reported, is out the window. But my source told me that just as high as Doug Peterson is on Nick Foles, he also likes Doug Peterson. So it would not shock me that there is uh, a legitimate conversation going on in that front office about whether or not to try and re-sign Sam Bradford or as a, not necessarily a fallback option, but maybe their plan A is to go out and get Nick Foles. It is shocking at face value, but you, you do digging, you ask around. And the one thing I came away with is Doug Peterson is very high on Nick Foles. You mentioned the franchise tag with Bradford. Obviously, you mentioned the negative with the franchise tag is just how expensive it would be for the one year. The upside, though, is that you'd only be committing to him for one year, whereas if they re-sign Bradford, they're resigning him to a long-term extension with probably a lot more guaranteed money involved. So what, what do you think is the reasoning behind them not wanting to give him the one-year deal, which maybe gives them a little bit more flexibility in the short term, versus 
possibly be interested in signing him to a you know three four year extension. I think it just comes down to the fact that they're they're kind of cap strapped to begin with. You look at the money that they've already thrown around, but by re-signing Zach Ertz, by giving Lane Johnson a new deal, and committing twenty three million dollars in guaranteed money to Vinny Curry. That's a lot of money in one offseason. There are still some moves to be made. Of course, today they released Riley Cooper. I wouldn't be surprised if there are several more moves made in the coming days to free up even more cap space. But I think that you look at the, the $20.25 million number, and that's just an albatross around your salary cap before you even get to free agency, before you even get a chance to sign your draft picks. And I, and I think that you have to look at this from the other side. If you franchise Sam Bradford, they're obviously not going to be creating an ideal situation for, for Bradford and his agent. They're going to want long-term stability. They're going to want a long-term commitment. And, and I think that if you can structure a long-term deal to a relatively team-friendly contract, especially with the cap going up, that then you can commit to your quarterback and start to, start to kind of build around him. Whereas if it's a one-year rental on a franchise tag, then you're hoping that whoever you pick in the draft is going to pan out and be ready in year two. And those are all tall, complicated orders that you need to start to, to really weigh the risk-reward on. What are you hearing in terms of Bradford liking Philadelphia? Does he want to be back, or is it a situation where he could kind of take it or leave it? He just wants to go for the paycheck. Yeah, I, I don't get the sense, and just being in that locker room every day, Pat, I didn't really get the feeling that there were a lot of guys that he hung out with in that room, obviously. Him and DeMarco Murray were relatively close. Lane Johnson came on my show and said that he had reached out about getting together with him because they're both from Oklahoma and played college football at Oklahoma. But I don't get the sense that he, he really enjoyed his time in Philadelphia. I get the sense that he was one of the few players that was uh, verbally and, and pretty animatedly upset about Chip Kelly being fired. And I think that it comes down to who's going to give him the best bang for his buck. Where can he get the best deal, whether it's here in Philadelphia whether it's San Francisco with Chip Kelly, Houston with a, an all-pro wide receiver in DeAndre Hopkins and Bill O'Brien, the head coach. Look out for Cleveland. They were high on him previously, and Hugh Jackson now an offensive-minded head coach that, that players around the league speak very highly of. If, if he gets the free agency, then, then I believe, guys, that that's the end of the Sam Bradford era in Philadelphia because there will be a market, and I don't know that the Eagles can afford to, to play and pay in that neighborhood. You brought up Riley Cooper. That was something that I think a lot of fans were very happy to see today when he uh, when he got released, whether you dislike him for his past controversial comments or you just dislike him because you don't think he's a very good wide receiver. But you mentioned that that may be almost like the first shoe to drop in terms of uh, cuts and players that are going to be let go. Who else would you would you keep an eye out for that, that may not be on this team in a couple weeks? I think that a lot of the players, guys, that are – deemed Chip Kelly guys, so to speak. D'Amico Ryan, somebody who, when you look at the inside linebacker position, you already have your starter set in stone with Jordan Hicks as you go back to a 4-3. I, I don't know what Connor Barwin's future holds because you're at a log jam in terms of outside linebackers, and he's a guy that you might be able to, to trade and get a draft pick in return for. Uh, Josh Huff. Not necessarily the prototypical West Coast offense wide receiver. I don't know that he necessarily fits Doug Peterson's scheme. And, and you have to kind of ask yourself, is this team going to be able to, to swallow the DeMarco Murray contract, or are they going to try and get creative to restructure that deal and move him 
uh, in this offseason via trade, which I think is very unlikely. But, but those are four or five players right there that would free up a substantial amount of cap space. And I think that the most likely players to move on in short order would be Josh Huff, D'Amico Ryans, possibly Connor Barwin. And again, Jason Peters is always going to be in that mix just because of his age and because of the money that they commanded over to Lane Johnson. They paid him left tackle money. He's going to play left tackle eventually, and it wouldn't shock me if that's starting this year. You brought up DeMarco Murray. He's saying all the right things in the public that he wants to be back. He doesn't want to end his tenure in Philadelphia on a bad note. But what are you hearing behind closed doors regarding uh, the likelihood that he actually does want to be back in Philadelphia? Yeah, well, as far as that goes, Pat, I think it, it speaks more to what do the Eagles feel that they're going to be able to do with DeMarco Murray? Can he fit Doug Peterson's scheme and be a downhill runner? The answer to that, I believe, is yes, just based on some whispers that I've heard. And if you're trying to move on from him, it's $13 million just to release him, which counts against this year's cap. And then you'd have to write him a $9 million paycheck just to walk out the door. So I don't believe that that releasing him makes sense financially or otherwise for this team. And then there's always the trade scenario. And and I spoke with a league source, and not that it takes a source to kind of wrap your mind around this scenario, but the source said to me, who would trade for that and who would trade for that running back at that price? So if the Eagles would be able to move on from DeMarco Murray, it would obviously take them finding a trade partner, somebody that he can negotiate a deal with, beforehand restructure his contract and then trade him but you guys know as much as i do you look around the league running backs are no longer the premier position they used to be nobody's paying that kind of money and i don't know how many teams are giving up assets for a running back that fell off a cliff the way murray did here last year when you look at uh going back to nick Foles, is the possibility of a, a return he didn't have his breakout season with doug peterson in philly uh, I've I've heard that Doug Peterson loves him. Obviously, you you uh, reaffirmed that that uh, rumor. I guess you could say worked him out in Arizona. But if he comes back to Philly, will they consider drafting a quarterback and kind of treating Nick Foles like Doug Peterson was when they drafted Donovan McNabb? Here are the two scenarios, Pat. I, I don't think that if you're making a trade and giving anything up for Nick Foles, I don't think it's for him to be the bridge guy. I think it's to bring him in here to be the quarterback. And obviously, Doug Peterson likes him a lot. He's high on him, sees his skill set, and thinks it's something that would work in his offense. You, you know my feelings about Sam Bradford versus Nick Foles. I think they'd, they'd be foolish not to get a deal done with Sam Bradford. But I think that the other scenario outside of bringing Nick Foles here to be the guy is if the Rams decide to release Nick Foles, which isn't out of the realm of possibility, given that he's due, I believe it's a $6 million roster bonus. If they release him outright, don't rule out a scenario where the Eagles re-sign Sam Bradford and then sign Nick Foles as the backup quarterback. But, but I do know this, the Eagles are exploring any and all options on this front at this point. Well, they, okay, so with that situation, what are the odds then that Mark Sanchez is back uh, in an Eagles screen? Regardless of this, I think it's less than a 40% chance that Mark Sanchez is back next year. $4.5 million for Mark Sanchez. A lot of money, and especially a lot of money if he's going to be the backup quarterback. Oh, that's great news. That's phenomenal. All right, uh, and then last one, we'll get you out on this. The draft is, uh, what, two or three months away. Eagles have a lot of holes. Offensive uh, line is a huge one, but also now quarterback could be one. 
Where do you think they go? I know that you've uh, done some mock drafts on NJ.com. Where do you have the Eagles uh, going? In my most recent mock draft, my Eagles seven-round mock, and thanks for the shout-out there for the NJ.com story, Pat. I have the Eagles taking uh, the kid Stanley from Notre Dame, the left tackle. I'm not sure that he's going to be on the board at 13, but if he's there, the Eagles need to start fortifying that offensive line. I think you go offensive line round one, probably pick up another tackle in the middle rounds, and then you could get a couple of quarterbacks in that three through six range, assuming that you either lock up Bradford or you go after Nick Foles. But you and I have talked about this a lot on the air and off the air, Pat. I don't believe that you're going to get a franchise quarterback out of this quarterback class in the draft. Matt, we appreciate the time. You can read all of his stuff on NJ.com. When will we hear you next on the air? Uh, Wednesday night, 10 o'clock, and then on Saturday sometime in the afternoon. Four to nine. I'm, I'm producing you. You should I'm know that. forward to that now, I know. How do you not write that on your calendar? I usually check the calendar midweek, and you know how the schedule is at 97.5, Pat. It, it is always fluid and always changing. Matt, I appreciate it, man. Guys, thanks for having me on. All right, Charlie, so Flyers go into the weekend looking for four possible points, end up getting one. Uno. How do you, not even dose. How do you see things going right now? Certainly for not the, trace. For the orange and black. It's always a disappointing weekend, and I think a lot of people, I wouldn't say expected it, but ex- expectations are definitely lower with the news that Sean Gattari is going to be out for a month. Um, he's just turned into such a key member of the team that – Losing him for an extended period of time right smack in the middle of the playoff race was always going to hurt them. And this was a tough weekend. They had a matchup against the Rangers, who are obviously a solid team, and they had a matchup against the Capitals, who are pretty close to the best team in the NHL. At the very least, they're the best team in the Eastern Conference right now. At the same time, you would have hoped they could have at least found a way to get a win in one of the games. And I think the Rangers game probably was the better chance but that game ended up getting marred by some controversy and and I feel like we can have a good conversation about this because it was a Flyers Rangers game I'm a Flyers guy you're a Rangers guy what ended up happening in the midpoint of the first period was Wayne Simmons had already gotten fired up I think he had he had taken like a late hit from someone in one of his earlier shifts and screamed at the referee like asking recall didn't get it so he was already in a, a fairly angry mood and he gets into a scrum with Ryan McDonough who's obviously the best defenseman on the Rangers apologies to Keith Yandel and Dan Girardi yeah anyway so he gets into a scrum with Ryan McDonough Ryan McDonough cross checks him in the back of the head then they they exchange pleasantries and then Simmons punches him in the face with his glove on and basically drops him like a bad habit McDonough was out and and we, we later find out that he is concussed. He missed the rest of the game and is at least going to be out for a little bit dealing with the effects of this concussion. So what happens is McDonough gets four minutes, gets two minors. Simmons gets a major and a match penalty, gets thrown out for the rest of the game. That was to be another 50 minutes, and then the game went into overtime and a shootout, so Simmons is gone. No additional discipline. So Simmons didn't get suspended. McDonough didn't get a fine. Nobody they basically just said, okay, well, the match penalty was enough. But I'll tell you, there, there are a lot of angry Flyers fans still angry that Simmons got kicked out of the game. Then there are a lot of angry Rangers fans that Simmons didn't get suspended for concussing the Rangers' best defenseman. So it was, where, where do you fall on here? Uh, I try to be pretty impartial. 
the guy he he took a he jabbed him with his glove on. I mean, it's unfortunate, obviously, if you're a Rangers fan, that Ryan McDonough has a concussion. But he, I don't feel like this was a Donald Brashear sucker punch of skating by. You have your glove off. All of a sudden, you decide, oh, I'm just going to try to hammer that guy. Like, was it a sucker punch? Maybe, but he kept his glove on. It's un- it's just an unfortunate that he hit him. I guess right in the exact spot where you would need to to suffer a concussion. The, the play looked like um, Simmons slashed him. Uh, they probably said something. He came back, and McDonough put his stick high, which cross-checked him in the head. And then they said some stuff, and, and then he, he punched him in the face. Would it have been a match penalty had he not fallen? No. Yeah. That, Should it have been a match penalty? No. I mean... The fact that he was kicked out of the game is ridiculous, but if you want to go, um, for Flyers fans that are bitching and moaning, the Rangers lost their best defenseman for the entire game. I understand that you lost one of the hottest players in the NHL, but it's not like the Rangers ended up on the winning side of this. They they lost arguably their, their best positional player, not named, I mean, other than, than Lundqvist, they lost their best player. So... If you want to bitch and moan about how the refs hate you, which is adorable, I, I love that argument. The refs hate us. The re- I wonder why. You go to the Wells Fargo Center, and every time the refs are announced, you get, they get booed. But it was uh, a terrible call by the refs. But the Rangers didn't end up winning the, the, the trade-off. I know it, well, originally I'm like, that's, that's awful. They, they, they kick out Simmons. McDonald will be back in you know five minutes. And then he never, and then came, he did, back. And then he never came back. And I was actually producing the game, so me, uh, Tim Saunders, and Steve Coates were talking about it between a break in the second period, and, and Saunders goes, I haven't said McDonough's name yet. And I'm like, no, he's out for the game. He goes, are you kidding? Because they thought he was acting. Yeah, I, a lot of Flyers fans. Which I thought he was acting. I thought he took acting lessons from Henrik Lundqvist, who's arguably the best actor in the NHL. My man looks like he got shot every time he, uh, he, he gets nudged. But I will say this. I think it's great that the NHL let men's league refs take a stab at at refing the NHL because those refs were atrocious they let the game get out of hand and i felt like they had no idea what was going on yeah it was it was a pretty bad performance and and i i i definitely uh i definitely agree that simmons doesn't get thrown out of the game if mcdonough if it's just a punch and maybe mcdonough falls down but then gets right back up and starts jawing with simmons then they probably give simmons Probably the same thing they gave McDonough. They probably give him both double minors, no harm, no foul, whatever. McDonough gets hurt. They feel like they have to they have to throw him out of the game. Maybe because that's the way they felt was going to keep control of the game. It ended up actually making things worse. It got the Flyers even more angry. But maybe that's what they thought. All right, we just need to get this guy out of the game because if Simmons is still in the game and McDonough's out, then they're just going to the Rangers are going to spend the rest of the game chasing after Simmons. That's possible. I mentioned on Twitter today the kind of the the constant back and forth when it comes to the fans and the NHL in penalizing outcomes versus actions. And it's an interesting debate because when you look at the way that, that, that the Department of Player Safety penalizes hits after the fact, so I'm talking suspensions, fines, what they're actually not allowed to use the outcome of the hit, so whether it hit injured a guy versus it didn't, they're not allowed to use that to 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 judge whether a guy should be suspended or not. But they're all they are allowed to use it to judge 
whether a whether a player if he is deemed to have done something illegal like let's say let's say they deem Simmons's hit to be be illegal and worthy of a suspension the fact that McDonough got hurt and was going to miss time could turn a one game suspension into a four but if they deem that it wasn't which they apparently did they deemed it wasn't worthy of an of an additional game the fact that McDonough got hurt isn't isn't a factor so there's that side but then there's the side that on the ice the refs absolutely punish the result. No questions asked. The refs will punish the outcome instead of the hit. And, I mean, we both agree that had McDonough not got knocked out, if it would have just been a punch and he would have shaken it off, whatever, it wouldn't have been a match penalty. So the question is, is that, is it, are, are, we, are we sending mixed signals here? So we have, we have the league saying outcomes aren't the big thing, and then the refs on the ice are saying they are the big thing, partially because they get cowed by the players and the coaches. I don't know, but it it, it feels inconsistent to me. It really does. For me, uh, the the you can't rip the refs too much. In this situation, you can. They were terrible. But with that situation, if it were another situation, you can't rip the refs too much because it's a bang-bang play. They have to make a call one way or another, and if a guy gets slashed and he skates off and the ref doesn't notice it, it's one thing. If a guy is writhing in pain, you're going to notice it. And somebody might, one of the refs might go, well, I saw out of the corner of my eye somebody take a swing at him. It's much like our judicial system. Whereas if I punch you in the head, if I punch you in the face, I get arrested for assault. If I punch you in the face and you fall down and you crack your head on the, on the sidewalk and you die, now I'm up for manslaughter. Yeah, that, that's fair. It's a fair point. So the NHL has the luxury of reviewing the play, whereas the ref has to make an instinctive reaction of, what do I do right now? So, either way, I, I feel like there's not a right situation. I really don't. I mean, should a guy be penalized for the same thing if another guy's injured? I don't know. But I don't blame a ref for looking at it and going, crap, the guy's lying on the ground. He's probably going to be out. we got to punish the guy to send a message to not do it. Yeah, I, I don't know where to go yeah, with it, that situation. You're right. It, it is it's, a, it's it's a so tougher, tough. It's a tougher thing than I was giving it credit for. I'll, I'll definitely agree with you there. It just gets frustrating when you see plays that look – you pl- see plays that look really bad. Like, I think what ticks me off the most is when a guy gets boarded. Like, it's an obvious defenseman sees the numbers, sees the name on the back of the jersey – smashes him into the boards, play could easily break his neck, the guy gets up, he's okay, and then the refs are like, oh, two minutes for boarding. Yeah. It's like, well, no. Whereas just, if the guy like, is, like, on... Yeah, like, like, just because he got up and got lucky doesn't mean it was any less vicious than if he would have been on the ground and they would have had to take him well, on a stretcher. And that's how you turn into soccer, whereas you get tapped and now you're writhing in pain. Yeah. Which, luckily, you know, hockey players pride themselves on their toughness, so if they can get up, they're going to get up. And we've seen situations that don't look bad, i.e. Ryan, Ryan McDonough. I mean, who would have thought a, a rabid punch with a glove on would result in a concussion? Not many people. I've seen worse punches than that. Yeah, yeah. But because he gets injured, because he's on the ground, it looks way worse than it was. So did the refs do good in the fly? No. If you look at that ref game as a whole, it was terrible. But in that situation, I can't say I wouldn't do the same thing if I was a ref. I mean, you're if you don't, so say... Say you don't, right? Say you're you're trying to break stuff up, and all of a sudden you look over and the guy's writhing in pain, and you just call two minutes. You say, all right, two minutes for whatever, four minutes for whatever. And then you go back and you watch the replay, and that guy 
got hit like two-hand chop, Donald Brashear style in the head. Now you're getting ripped. I mean, how did he miss that? And that's the thing. As fans, we like to rip the refs, but we have the luxury of replay right then and there. They've already made their call. They can't go back. You can't, if you're a ref, you can't go back to the, to the, to the benches and go, look, I, I, I just saw the video board. I really screwed up. My bad. Um, your guy should be in prison for what he did. So we're going to actually tack on 10. Like they can't do that. So we can, we like to rip the refs and we have a luxury. They don't. And that is replay. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And to change gears a little bit, stay on the flyers. There's another another narrative that's kind of been popping up. I would say over the past couple weeks, um, Ghost Bear. We'll get to Ghost Bear, but there's another one before that. I kind of want to go on a little bit of a rant here. Um, I guess a, a rant for me. So this is probably like you know your anger level. I'll go to the like, bathroom at like four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, one thing I've noticed, and I think it's starting to get some play with some of the writers. Um, what I've noticed on Twitter is over the past month maybe i've gotten a lot of people complaining my mentions about steve mason and it it really really seems like people are starting to turn on him to a degree and 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 we're starting to see it come out a little bit more bill Meltzer is a great writer writes for hockeybuzz.com he wrote an article yesterday because i think he's been dealing with the same thing i've been dealing with a lot of people complaining about mason he wrote a really really great defensive mason basically saying like look lay off the guy the guy's teammates love him his stats are fine He's, you know, there, yeah, he hasn't been perfect this year, but he's certainly not even in the top five of reasons why the Flyers aren't in his playoff spot right now. So, so chill out. Well, yeah. then Glenn Macnow writes an article today. Now, granted, say what you will about Glenn Macnow. I know he's not exactly Mr. Popularity at 97.5, the Fanatic Studios, but he wrote an article basically saying that he thought that the Phillies were the Philadelphia team closest to winning a playoff series because he could not trust. Steve Mason to win a playoff series and it just seems like there's a lot of a lot of these this narrative is coming together and I didn't see it coming like I I watch all the games I cover the games I talk to the players and and I don't get the impression watching the game nor do I get the impression talking to players on the team that they have any lack of faith in Steve Mason it's weird to me that that there's a contingent of fans that just are really starting to lose faith in the guy. Let me read you a text message I received on uh, Tuesday, so about a week ago from my dad. Similar. Came out of nowhere for me. He goes, I really hate Steve Mason. Gotta be one of the worst goalies in the league. At least one bad goal per game should not be a starter. Now, I responded with, he's not going to win you a cup, but he's solid. If his D was better, he'd have a great goals against average like Esh in the mid-2000s. He goes on, he sucks, he's terrible, he's the worst thing ever. And I go, Dad, I could probably name five worst goalies that you watch. I think he said, he goes, I've been watching hockey since 71, and he lets in more soft goals than any goalie I've ever seen. I like Norberth. And I go, like, I can name goalies that you've watched. Michael Layton. That are worse. Michael I actually Layton. didn't name him. I went, because I said that, and he goes, no, you can't. <laughs> and I think at this point he was joking around with me. Like, I think he realized, all right, maybe I'm, maybe I'm over-exaggerating. <laughs> and I went, Robert Esch, Ilya Brzezgalov, Antero Nidamaki, Brian Boucher, Jeff Hackett, Garth Snow, all way worse. And he went all much better than Mason. <laughs> so I think he <laughs> knew at that he's point. he's playing with it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But you're right. The, the hatred, I guess, for Steve Mason. I think in this city, more than any, there's a, a love 
there is such a rise and immediate fall. I agree. And you saw it with Ryan Howard. Ryan Howard was the cat's pajamas in 06 and 05 and 06. Rookie of the year. MVP. 07 good. 08 good. And then all of a sudden, but even towards 08, yeah. it was like, yeah. wait a minute, he strikes out no, too much. No, because- if, if, you, if you remember the whole, I mean, I've always had this theory, and this is changing the subject a little bit, but if you remember the uh, the the comment from J Roll about the the you know Fairweather fans and all that stuff, and that that some people still haven't forgiven him for, I to this day think that was primarily because J Roll was pissed that fans were turning on Howard. Yeah, you know, it's like because he wasn't winning Rookie of the Year MVP every year, hitting sixty home runs, we were immediately turning on him. We like to think in Philadelphia, you know, like you can be good, but if you're not a five tool player. All of a sudden, it's like, you know, we don't we don't appreciate you. Like yeah. Brian Dawkins was everything. Yeah, well, it's it's the effort thing. It's the if yeah yeah if, 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 if a guy looks like if a guy looks like he's given hundred percent on every play, yeah. then we love him. But like yeah, like Howard, he's a power hitter. He's not going to be like well, diving in the dirt. You know, and you look at I feel like the same thing happened with Giroux a little bit. Where now people are like, well, you should trade him. He's not that good. He's not he's not the best player in the world. He's not even top five. Not top ten. The only negative I can think with Mason is he's injury prone. Yeah, and, and it seems like the you know the wind blows the wrong way and the yeah. guy's out for a day or two. No, I agree with that, and I think like there are legitimate. I I wouldn't say necessarily criticisms, but like there are things that if I heard someone say, "This is why I don't trust Steve Mason," I'd be like, "Yeah, I buy that." Like the injuries, that's legitimate. This is a guy who's been banged up pretty much the entirety of this year. He was banged up a lot of last year, had the knee issue. So yeah, I can buy someone saying. I don't know if I want to commit to this guy long term past the end of his contract at the end of next season because I'm afraid he's, he can't stay healthy and can't give you 60 games a year as a starting goalie. That to me is a legitimate concern. Another legitimate concern, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I can understand where they're coming from is them saying, look, I mean, if you look back in his career, this guy's had more bad seasons than, than good seasons. He could always, what if he turns back into the pumpkin he, he was in Columbus? Now, do I think that's going to happen? No, but it's, it's a concern. I mean, you never know with goalies and, He's probably spent more time in his career being bad than being good, so I can buy that. What I don't buy is when people watch a game, they watch him make a ton of really good saves all game, and then he happens to give up a goal with a minute left, which is a lot of times primarily on his defense for not clearing the puck, and because they didn't get the win, they freak out, and they blame Mason because the goalie's the easiest person to blame. And what kills me the most, you mentioned it, it's the rise and fall of Philadelphia players. People... First, they defend their players like crazy. Then they reach a plateau, and then they go downhill. Look at Bobby Abreu. Well, you look at the numbers for Mason, and I don't, I, I don't, I don't think you were. No, you were, you were at ninety-seven-five, so you probably remember this. The year the Flyers got to the got to the, the playoffs against the Rangers that year, Steve Mason finished with. Oh, them. you wait. You mean the year I was tied to a pole on City Line Avenue? <laughs> yes, yes, and, that and, year. And there was a select group of people that thought I was legitimately kidnapped, even not realizing I got paid to do that. That year. You mean yeah, that year? That year. But Steve Mason finished the season with a nine seventeen save percentage, a a solid save percentage. Not Carey Price good, not Henrik Lundqvist good. No, but it, not, was, it, it was it was okay. Not terrible. You you had articles being written. You had people talking about how oh Mason's the MVP. He's having such a great year. He looks so good. And you know why? Because it was coming off of the Briz era. Yeah. Because people were were so happy to have a guy number one who was playing better than they expected, and number two wasn't an obvious total head case. So they freaked out. So they decided they were in love with the guy. 
The following year, he does really well. Had some injury issues last year, but still, stat-wise, was great. This year, people are turning on him. He has a 9.16 save percentage. He has almost the exact same save percentage he had two years ago when everybody thought he was the cat's pajamas. And it's that same thing you said about the rise and fall. We, we have low expectations. Guys exceed it. We love them. Then once we get the high expectations, if they're not dominant every single game, then they turn on them. And I'm afraid that's what's happened in the Mason. And what it just it drives me nuts because there are so many problems with this Flyers team. If you've been listening to our podcast, you've you've heard me talk about it. If you read my articles, you've you've read about me talking about it. You know, their their bottom two lines are bad. Their defense, Michael Delzato is their number one defenseman. Radko Gudis and Nick Schultz are in their top four. Like goal scorer Nick Schultz. Goal scorer. Yeah, he did score against the against the Capitals. I I actually said everybody bet the uh, bet the underdog in the Super Bowl, and they should have because the Broncos won. But anyway, the Flyers are such a flawed team, and we as fans are are picking on Mason. Like Mason isn't even close to being one of the problems of this team. Maybe he's not an elite goaltender, but he's certainly not someone. I, I don't. He's think, not the reason. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think he's like significantly worse than like a Corey Crawford. Like I, I don't. I, I mean, Crawford's got a championship, but he's also played with Jonathan Taze, Patrick Kane, Duncan Keith. Like, well, and that's why I said to my dad, "Hey, if they had a better defense, his goals against average and likely, I think his save percentage would be way better. It could be. It certainly could be. I mean, maybe they'd spend less it's time. Certainly, on the penalty not, it certainly wouldn't be worse. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, and it, it's. It's frustrating because I think Philadelphia fans do this a lot. Um, you know, they've done this for, did this for like Iverson. It's like, well, you can't win with Iverson. It's like, well, no, maybe you can't win with the six other guys that are terrible on the roster. Like, let's let's not let's not blame losses on the few good players on a team. Let's blame losses on the very many bad players. And on then a team. we wonder why we drive out we drive out players. It, it it's it's annoying, and I. I hope that Mason has a strong finish of the year because I really don't want this to continue, but you're seeing the start of it, and Mason's got one more year left on his deal, and I, I don't. I wonder if, I wonder if the, the organization is going to start souring him on him the way the fans seem to be and, and what that's going to mean for, for the organization in the future. He is the editor-in-chief of OwlScoop.com and the host of the Scoop podcast, a website and podcast dedicated to Temple football. His name's John DiCarlo. John, how are you, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, so National Signing Day was last Wednesday. Temple had a really, really big day. Just highlight some of the uh, some of the bell cows that, that Temple got in this uh, recruiting class. I guess the, the big ones, Karamo Diabate, the four-star defensive end from Prep Charter. Um, I mean, he, you got to put him up at the, at the top of the list. Um, I would say Anthony Russo, the quarterback from uh, Archbishop Wood, is up there too. You have what you know what the staff hopes is, you know, it's quarterback of of the future. Uh, getting Benny Walsh from St. Joe's Prep was big for him. Um, Isaiah Wright, the wide receiver that they flipped from Rutgers, a um, receiver from Connecticut. Um, who else am I thinking of here? Uh, I, I think even a guy like Matt Hennessy from from Don Bosco Prep, the new offensive lineman in this class. Uh, I think Linwood Crump's a really intriguing uh, get for them. Hasn't played football in about two years uh, from North Jersey. He's big. But I mean, the, the two biggest ones, I'd say, are, are Caramo and Anthony Russo. I mean, they're, if you're in the rankings, they're, they're highly ranked guys, and they're local guys. And we've, you, know, you and I have talked about this a bunch of times before. Um, you know, it wasn't too long ago where 
you know, Temple just wasn't going to get a lot of good kids locally because they were going to go to, go to Pitt or Penn State or Rutgers or Maryland because they're still – and they're still facing, you know, that stigma of like, well, it's not really big-time football. They don't sell out every game. It's, they're, they're still facing that when they call it on the recruiting trail. But to get Karamo was big. I mean, he – uh, you know, they got a couple of four-star guys last year in T.J. Simmons and Kareem Ali. T.J. Simmons, I think, would be the cautionary tale that not every four-star recruit works out because already he's transferring out. Karamo doesn't have any injury history. Uh, had he committed, you know, Kyle said this on our, on our podcast last week, had he committed to, to sign with South Carolina, he would have been, I, I believe, their top-ranked recruit. And, uh, you know, according to Kyle, he got the late offer from Alabama or a late call from Alabama. So, Again, you know, that's not something we're accustomed to talking about when it comes to Temple football recruiting. But I'd say Karamo and Russo you put at the top of the list. But I think, you know, they're, you know every staff is pleased with who they get, and then they bring them in and coach them up. But those would be two of the guys at the top of the list you mentioned. When you look at this, this staff and how they've recruited, what exactly are they selling these guys to get them to come to North Broad? Uh, I, think they're, I think they can now point to – they can now point to facilities. They can point to the fact that there are, you know, Temple players in the NFL. Um, I mean, they could point to, I mean, not every player they recruit is going to be a kicker like Brandon McManus, but they can point to Brandon McManus. They can point to, you know, Muhammad Wilkerson. They can point to Tahir Whitehead and so on and so forth. Um, you know, they have a pretty nice practice facility. Obviously, this year is a huge selling point for them because this year was the, this past season was really, you know, that's the fruits of their labor right there. That you, you beat Penn State for the first time since 1941. Um, you know, rarely would a staff want to point to, you know, to moral victories. But, you know, anybody who saw that atmosphere at the link on Halloween uh, for the Notre Dame game, and yes, a lot of people there, a lot of people were there to see Notre Dame because they're like the, you know, they're like the New York Yankees of college football. But, you know, half that crowd was there for Temple, maybe a little bit more than half that crowd was there for Temple. They not only were they in the game, they should have won the game. So when you go to when you go down to the link and you see an atmosphere that's usually reserved for the Eagles and you know, tying it to Temple football, that's a huge, huge selling point. So now they can actually say, Hey, we beat Penn State, we should have beat Notre Dame, you know, we're hanging in there with these teams, we played for a conference championship. So they're selling that and really they're they're also selling the experience. I mean, Matt's got a good blend of older and, and younger staff members, and even the older guys like Phil Snow find ways to connect with these kids. I mean, Phil's kind of the elder statesman of the staff. Now it's George DeLeon, who Matt just brought on, who's a longtime, you know, assistant coach. But Phil's coach, you know, Phil's probably had a hand in sending close to 90 guys to the NFL. He talks about Pat Tillman a lot. He's coached Terrell Suggs. He was in the Pac-10 for a long time. Um, you know, Matt obviously connects with these kids pretty well. He's relatable. They can crack jokes. And, um, but I think they're pretty honest with them. I mean, obviously, we're not there when they're recruiting the kids, but every recruit we talk to usually stresses the family atmosphere. They stress honesty. They stress the fact that the coaches will very practically say, look, if, we, if you think you're good enough to come in and play right away, if you push for it, you'll get immediate playing time. If not, we'll redshirt you and develop you. The pitch back in you know 2006 to 2009 when – and some of Al Golden's early years, it was like, yeah, we need you to play right away. You're going to get right in there. You're going to learn, you know, trial by fire. But now, you know, some of these better recruits they can bring in and redshirt, like Kareem Ali, like Chappelle Russell, and guys like that. So I think they're they're finally able to sell a lot of what other college football programs were able to sell in the past. They don't necessarily have to 
to think hard about what they have to sell and say, oh, well, maybe in a couple of years we'll get to a bowl game. Maybe in a couple of years we'll be competing for a college, uh, a conference championship. So now they've got a lot to sell, Apparently, you know, especially after, after the season they had. And now when they go out and get this class, they say, okay, we started off 10 and two, we finished 10 and four. We kind of ended with a thud, but here's what we're seeing. You know, we need to shore up the right side of our offensive line. We need more playmakers, playmakers on offense. We need more speed. So now they find the next thing that they can sell and they can say, Hey, maybe you're Isaiah Wright. Maybe you're that guy that helps replace, you know, Robbie Anderson, Cromwell. Maybe you're our next great pass rusher that has seven or eight sacks as a true freshman. So that's what they're, that's what they're selling when they're going out there. It seemed like, um, they would, they would offer a kid who, might have been under-recruited, and this season especially, it seemed like you'd have Penn State and Rutgers and some of the other schools offer this kid out of nowhere and try to steal the recruit. How much of it is, um, for lack of a better term, how much of it is the uh, P5 schools kind of saying, get off our lawn, and how much of it is just a testament to Matt Rule finding underdeveloped talent? I think it's, it's a little bit of both. I think they've always kind of... Uh, I think over the past several years, they've always done a fairly good job in, in finding underdeveloped talent, and they've been fending off other schools. Now it's really happening. Um, you know, where, where Rutgers comes into play, you've got Chris Ash, who pretty much fired his entire staff, which I don't think was the smartest thing in the world for him to do because he got rid of a couple of guys who had ties to or are related to prominent high school coaches in, in New Jersey, and I don't think that was a really smart thing for him to do. So a guy like him who comes in and doesn't have a lot of time on his hands is going to try to pilfer other people's commitment lists. So, you know, they went after um, they went after Kareem Golden, and that didn't end too well for Rutgers because you know, I have the belief that all of these guys are, you know, fans get a little too sanctimonious sometimes and say, oh, well, our – staff doesn't go after committed kids. No, they all do. Temple does, Rutgers does, Penn State does, Pitt, Maryland, everyone does. But it's a matter of how you go about it. And, um, you know, if you follow some of these guys on Twitter, Kareem Golden tweeted at Chris Ash and tweeted at his position coach and said, basically, please stop contacting me. Or, you know, he said something to that effect. I'm committed to Temple. Um, and that's the danger now. Those kids will put that stuff out on social media. So, you know, they send it off Rutgers to keep a guy like Kareem Golden, who is a really talented kid from North Jersey, but if, if things play out well, Temple will have the ability to redshirt him. You know, they they lost uh, Dale and Darian to Penn State, and when Temple got a verbal from Darian, he was a kind of largely under-recruited kid. I think people were intrigued by his size, but um, he wasn't putting up eye-popping numbers, but then, you know, Temple gets him, and then schools start seeing film of him. In Penn State's case, uh, I was a little surprised because by now James Franklin should more than have his foothold on what he wants to do uh, recruiting-wise. So, yeah, a lot of it is them, you know, finding underdeveloped talent or undiscovered talent. I think they've they've had to do that. You know, they've had to do that for years and kind of fend people off late, and sometimes they, they weren't able to fend people off. Like, um, you know, with this class, they lost a couple of kids. Uh, they lost Jason Went to Ohio State, and in that case, you know, what are you really going to do there? I remember they had him in camp uh, over the summer. And, you know, I mean, you can talk to the coaches off to the side and you can't quote them on the record, but I remember talking to Ed Foley at the time and Ed was talking about Jason saying, well, we really like this kid. It's just going to be a matter of whether or not, you know, if we get a commitment from him, if we can keep him because, you know, they start bringing these kids into camp and they have good senior seasons. So you're going to get some, you're going to lose some. The difference is now is that Temple's actually starting to, 
you know, flip a couple of these guys. Um, you know, like Isaiah Wright, they didn't technically flip uh, Karamo because he had decommitted and was, you know, un, you know, kind of a free agent, so to speak, for a little while before Temple got him. But yeah, they they really trust their evaluations. They they love getting guys in the camp and evaluating them. And they do stay true to their word because even though there are some, like you said, some bell cows in this class, you know, you have guys like, you know, Kamir Brown from, from Penns Grove down in South Jersey, closer to like the Delaware Memorial Bridge, who they really like. You know, he probably gets to probably needs to be a little bigger and and stronger, but they'll redshirt him. They really liked him when he had the chance to play against Brad Hawkins this year, uh, who's going to Michigan. Uh, Hawkins is the kid, the wide receiver from Camden. I think Kamir Brown held him to like three catches for 30-some yards. So if you look at that performance there, you say, okay, what's the difference between Kamir Brown and a, and a you know, four-star corner from North Jersey who has a big, you know, offer list? Um, they like some of these other guys that they, you know, that they think are really good athletes, like Kenny Yeboah, a two-star kid uh, from Parkland High School up by Allentown who just looks like a, a freak of an athlete. Um I'm actually kind of surprised, and who knows what kind of interest these guys got down the stretch. I think they've done a good job over the years of developing guys like that because, again, as we've said a million times in all these conversations around Penn State and Notre Dame as these games are coming along, a lot of the guys that were really the foundation of this program this year were all guys like Kevon Young, Tyre Matkavich, Matt Ioannidis, who did not have big offer sheets. So I don't know that they're going to shy away from those guys. They'll still trust their evaluations on those guys and um, – continue to trust, you know, what they see. It's just now that they're going to be sending people off a little bit more, but it'll depend from year to year. It depends on who has a new job, who's kind of desperate to go out and, like I said, pill for other people's commitment lists. I don't think things will be as crazy next year because you'll have maybe a somewhat stable situation at Rutgers or somewhat stable situation, you know, at Maryland, Syracuse and schools like that, you know, guys will at least be in their first year. Uh, but I think it, this year was as crazy as it's been in a while because of so many new coaches coming in and then them trying to kind of pluck other people and other players away from other programs. Who do you think, you've mentioned uh, redshirting, who do you think are the impact players of, of this class? Uh, Karamu Diabate, I would say, is you know has a chance to play right away and be an impact guy right away. Uh, I would say Isaiah Wright, the wide receiver from Connecticut, who had been uh, committed to uh, committed to Rutgers. Um yeah, Anthony Russo has a chance to be really good, but again, unless unless PJ Walker gets hurt, I think you're you're redshirting him. Um, I'd say you know Freddie Johnson just based. On, I mean, the staff really really seems to like Freddie Johnson, wide receiver from from Florida. Um, you know, when you're losing you're losing a decent amount of speed, and Robbie Anderson, you're losing a couple of different receivers there. And Robbie, you're losing a possession guy, John Christopher. So anybody who's you know it sounds so simple to say, but anybody who's fast and can get open, they're gonna they're gonna get a look in camp. Um, uh, I'm just looking down the, the list here. Um, maybe even a guy like William Quenku, the a guy that they got late, the linebacker from uh, from Maryland. You know, you're losing. You're obviously losing a lot in Tyler, but they need um, they need some speed there. They need to get faster at linebacker. They need to get more athletic at linebacker. So maybe he's a guy that steps in. And you know, Greg Webb is always intriguing. They've now signed him two years in a row. He's a three-star defensive tackle. He's a he's a, a JUCO player in Kansas right now. Uh, originally from Timber Creek High School in South Jersey, I think was a, a, a U.S. Army All-American there. Uh, went to North Carolina, redshirted, left North Carolina due to academics. Was in junior college. Temple signed him last year, 
uh, didn't have his academics in order, so they signed him again. So now, from what I hear, it looks like he's on a better pace to, to qualify. He's on like a percentage towards uh, graduation completion or something like that. Now, if they get him in, you know, from if if we're to believe what he what we see that he puts on Twitter, I think he's down from like 345 pounds down to like 300. So if he's back in that playing weight and he qualifies, I mean, he's got a chance to make an impact on the defensive line because. For as good as that defense was in stretches this year, they had a couple of clunker-type games, you know, at SMU, uh, certainly down at USF. And then I think that defense hit a bit of a wall. Uh, both sides of the ball really hit a, hit a bit of a wall in the in the conference championship game, although I would argue that Houston was just simply the better team. And then they certainly didn't play as well as they wanted to play in the bowl game. So, you know, if they can get better on both lines and provide more of a pass rush, you know, again, Diabate and Greg Webb could be instant impact guys. Isaiah Wright on offense. And then there will be somebody from this class that we're not really talking about right now, probably, that, that just makes uh, makes an impact. Maybe it's Kevon Bruton at safety, although, you know, he has some high major offers. So maybe a guy like him, um, you know, maybe a guy like Dan Archibald comes in from Springfield High School and has a really good camp and he has a chance to rush the passer, although they could, they could choose to put another 20 or 30 pounds on him and try and make him an offensive tackle. So, but I would say those are, those are the guys that would probably have the best chance of being in the mix. And last one, the Temple Football Stadium. What's the latest? Well, so the board of trustees met today and approved, um, unanimously approved, um, you know, the $1 million design uh, to start, you know, you know, start the design of it and moving forward with zoning and all that stuff. So, you know, and I, none of that should really be a surprise to anybody. You know, Temple wants to get this done. I think that, you know, over the past couple of weeks and in the past, any time the, the Board of Trustees has met, you certainly have, you know, some protesters, some community opposition. And, and I get that. I mean, I've been I've been through this before. I was actually a student journalist at Temple um, before I, you know, moved on to my newspaper career for a while. I was a student at Temple when they were trying to get the Apollo Temple built, which later became the Leopold Center. And back then, there was a lot of apprehension. Obviously, it was a different time because it's the late 90s and there's no social media and there's not as much visibility linked to it. But uh, I think people didn't want the Leopold Center back at the time. They didn't want the Apollo because the question was, you know, the, the real raw emotion of it was, People in North Philly, people in the neighborhood were saying, all this is going to do is bring people in from the suburbs to watch a college basketball game, and then they're going to leave to go back home to the suburbs, and they're not going to invest any money in our neighborhood. And I understand where that fear comes from. It was a valid question at the time, but that's not really what's happened. You know, uh, you know, now there's been you know, more business development, bars, restaurants, and stuff like that. Now the apprehension is you've, you've, you have so many more college students living in North Philly you know, most of them are behaving, some of them aren't. And, you know, I, I get where some of the community concerns come from. But um, so I think over the last couple of weeks, a lot has been lost in, you know, the protests and the community concerns. And they have every right to be there to voice their concerns. But I think this administration is um, fully, fully committed to getting the stadium built. And, you know, today was another step in that direction. You know, to the people who oppose the stadium, my, you know, my question to them would be, well, what, what do you want the football program to do? Do you want them to keep playing in the link and then have the Eagles more than double the rent on them? You know, then you're being fiscally irresponsible. So, you know, today was a big step, and I'm sure that they'll, you know, that they'll keep moving forward. I mean, a bunch of donors, and I can't remember if I had 
you know, mentioned this to you guys, I mentioned it to the guys at 97.5 or, um, or another show, um, you know, a lot of donors and, and, you know, fans that we've talked to have already been approached and been shown renderings of what the stadium is going to look like. So it's not like they, you know, when they talk about doing a feasibility study and, and talking to the community, they didn't just start this stuff yesterday. I think that they've, you know, today was a big step. They had to weather the, the transition of a new mayor and Jim Kenney and kind of hearing him out. And, uh, I guess Daryl Clark will continue to say what he's going to say. There's the political piece to it. That'll be the next piece of it, getting 15th Street closed off. And there are always going to be some peaks and valleys with the stuff. There certainly were when they got the way course center built. You know, John Street held it up for about four or five years, and John Cheney was upset with them. And then when it got built, John Cheney had to go back, as he says, on all the mean things he said about John Street. So, I mean, it's going to get done. It's just a matter of when, and today was another big step in that direction. You can follow him on Twitter, owlscoop underscore com. You can read everything regarding Temple Sports, whether it be the football or basketball team at owlscoop.com. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast, The Scoop on iTunes. John, thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Anytime. Talk to you soon. Because we are crunched for time, we are going to put the movie and music review on hiatus. If you want, you can hit me up on Twitter. I'll give you plenty of movie reviews in 140 characters or less. But uh, we're going to go right into the drive-thru. Let's start out with Calvin Johnson contemplating retirement. Too soon for the future Hall of Famer? I'm, you know what? I'm never going to blame guys, especially in this day and age with, with injuries, concussions, and CTE. If, if their body's breaking down and they don't feel like they can compete at a high level, I get it. I'm not going to give them – I'm not going to rip them for it. It's definitely too soon from a fan perspective. I love watching Calvin Johnson play. He's a physical freak, maybe the most physically dominant wide receiver of all time, at least of this year. And I'm, I, if he retires, I'm certainly going to miss him. And it's it's sad because it's just another example of a, a great Detroit Lions player retiring earlier than you expect. And you have to wonder if it's partially because they don't really want to play in Detroit anymore. <laughs> Marshawn Lynch also announced his retirement. He did it on Twitter posting a picture of his cleats hanging on a, uh, a telephone wire. What did you think of the timing, doing it during the Super Bowl? Not even before, but during the game. I loved it. I, I absolutely loved it. There's, he, does, he doesn't care. He doesn't care that like nobody noticed. That's the best part. We're all focused on the Super Bowl, and all of a sudden, Marshawn Lynch tweets out like, Peace. I'm done. <laughs> Bye, guys. You know, and I don't think he was trying to upstage it. I don't even know if you knew the Super Bowl. I think was going he's just on. in his own world. I, like, I, agree. I think that's I just think he's him. on his own world. There was a, there was a report that came out this week that he hasn't spent any of the money he ever made. I give him credit. I mean, yeah, props like to he him. basically made it from endorse. He spent his money on from endorsements and business ventures. You know, I was totally when this guy came in the league, I thought he was next Pac-Man Jones, and I couldn't have been more wrong about it. And I'm I'm sad to see him go, but with the recent studies of CTE and everything, I can't blame any football player from, from leaving the game early. Pro Football Hall of Fame inductees are announced. Brett Favre is in. Marvin Harrison is in. About time on that one. And Terrell Owens. Not in. Was he snubbed? Was he snubbed in that he's a Hall of Famer? Yeah, I think he's a Hall of Famer. I think he's got the stats. I think he's dominant in the NFL in his prime. And he was he's a guy who was really, in a lot of ways, the face of the NFL for, for a good number of years, for better or worse. You know, some people didn't love him. Other people thought he was great until they decided they hated him. One thing I will say, though, about Owens is that it's 
it's really hard for receivers to get in the Hall, the Hall of Fame on the first try. Like, it just it doesn't seem to happen. Like, like, Harrison, I think it took him, like, three or four tries to get in, and he's one of the best receivers of all time. Like, basically, if your name's not Jerry Rice, you're not getting in well, first ballot. I think part of it, too, is the negative that is attached to both of them. If Marvin Harrison ever had the gun charge, would he be a first ballot Hall of Famer? Likely. More likely. He had, he had better numbers than Andre Reid. And Andre Reid got in the year, the first year that Marvin Harrison was yeah. up for the ballot. If T.O. isn't doing sit-ups in his driveway, is he a first ballot Hall of Famer? Like, you look at his numbers and you watch him play, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. If you think of the great wide receivers in our in our time, it's like Rice, T.O., Harrison, who else? I'm sure we're forgetting guys. Moss. Yeah, Moss. Like, Moss. they're top five. And Man. if you're a top five receiver of all time, you're a first ballot Hall of Famer. So on the basketball, the Sixers reportedly interested in acquiring Blake Griffin. Would you do the move? Is, is it time to, to win now? The time to rush the process. The deal uh, would have to include Carl Landry, who is a scrub, but he's the highest paid guy on the team. It'd have to include Okafor, Noel, talent picks. I don't know. He's 26, which is fine. You know, you're about to hit your prime. Um, I'm not the biggest basketball guy. We're going to have Devon Givens on next week to discuss the, the trade deadline. It really had to do with what did the move include. I, I don't want to sell on all these assets that they've gotten. Part of me really wants to just see what Embiid has, if he has anything. Because we spent this long waiting for Embiid on the floor that I would hate for them to just trade him, which they wouldn't. No team's going to take Joel Embiid right now. He's never played a game. But would I do the move? It really depends on what the move Nova is the number one team in the country for the first time ever. Your thoughts? So what, does this mean they're actually going to get to what, like the Sweet 16 Maybe. before they uh, before they well, choke? Hey, they got to get to the round of 32 before that. Okay. Right. I, I, I think with Nova, like, yeah, they've never been the number one team in the nation, but we've, we've seen this story before. This is a team that they rack up wins against teams that they're clearly more talented than, clear team teams that are clearly better coached then and then they hit the uh, they hit the NCAA tournament and whether it's in round three because I guess now round one is, is technically the play-in round yeah I hate that so round two they usually win the first the, their first game and usually this is like a second or third game they they fall to a team that well they didn't they didn't win their first round game last year okay the okay. amount of hate that I got was amazing <laughs> point is is that it's this seems like a team that Every year they run into like an ultra-athletic squad that may be underachieved during the regular season, but because that ultra-athletic squad is so much more athletic than Nova, they run them out of the building. And, and until they prove, until Jay Wright and Nova prove that they can uh, that they can consistently make Elite Eights, Sweet 16s, Final Fours, I, I don't think this number one ranking changes anything. They need to prove it on the court. I, I've said this for years. I don't think Jay Wright's good. I think he's a phenomenal recruiter. And I think he's a terrible coach. That's, I just think he gets out coached for everything. You look at the uh, level of recruits that this guy's gotten, it just seems like he just doesn't know how to coach. Then again, he did go to the Final Four with like four guards and one big guy, but that was years ago. Great score, right? Yeah, I, I, I hate him. I look forward to him. The next up, spring training for the Phillies. Are you excited? I'm I'm pretty excited. I'm, I'm happy they're on the right track, and I'm curious to hear your opinion. I'm really pumped. You sound it. I can't wait. It kind of annoys me that people are like, oh, I can't wait for spring training, knowing they're Phillies fans. 
Because it's like that's like a guy saying like I can't wait to get kicked in the nuts for like a hundred. But at least we, days. but at least we know that they're going to be bad, and we know that they're but at we least knew moving we were in the right be direction. La- bad last year, and well, I still wasn't. Really... I, I don't know if Ruben Amaro knew. Okay, he didn't know. <laughs> You're right. I was looking forward. The thing I was looking forward to last year was Ruben Amaro getting fired. But am I looking forward to seeing terrible baseball? No, I'm not. I'm not pumped up to see terrible. I hate spring training, training camp. OTAs. I hate it all. If it doesn't count, I'm not watching. At least nobody gets, really nobody gets hurt. In That's true. That's, That's true. Positive. It's unlike the NFL where God, it happens all the time. But, yeah, for me, I guess I'm a weird sports fan. It, literally, if it doesn't count, like, like I don't watch preseason football. I don't watch spring training baseball because it doesn't count. I don't watch it and either, it's a waste I'll of follow it. I'll, I'll, yeah, like, I'll follow it on Twitter, but I'm not, like, it's, I feel like it's a waste of my time to sit there and watch, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, Aaron Altair getting solid at bats and JC Ramirez uh, throwing when you know they're, they're just they're not going to make it. These aren't starters. So the one thing I'm looking really forward to is draft because the Phillies have a number one pick. Kind of like last year, I'm going to be focused more on the minor league than I am at the actual major league. Club. But there's there's some there's interesting some, no. pieces on the major league team. I will be focused on the, Franco, no, the Nolas, the, Nola. and the Yeah, but will I be focused on? them or, or will I be following to see how double A and triple A right that I'm going to be more focused on that I'm going to watch the games I mean there's nothing else to watch in the summertime it's that and reruns of Big Bang Theory but am I pumped am I you know can't wait counting in the days no absolutely uh, last one for you Shady McCoy arrested is it time to get out your free Shady shirts this doesn't look good and, and- it seems like there's like other NFL players that were involved in this too, whose names haven't been released. But it sounds like McCoy, looking at you, Peyton, got yeah. That's what Peyton was that's, doing. That's where, that's the night where, before the Super Bowl, he was he went to that's Philly, where he went and drank Budweiser, flew back, flew back to San Francisco to play the game. No, uh, the thing with McCoy is that everyone knew he was like even when he was good, everybody kind of was kind of agreed that look, this this guy seems like a sure. He just happens to be a really good NFL running back and. This doesn't surprise me in the slightest. The, the the really bad thing for him isn't just that he got into a fight. It's that he got into a fight with two off-duty cops and, and apparently, beat the, apparently beat the crap out of him. So, like, the, I, I can't think of a worse situation for him. Like, if he would have gotten into a fight with just some random dude at a bar, might have gotten swept under the rug. But the fact that he got into a fight with two off-duty cops, this is going to be terrible for his PR. And he's already an aging running back. So, yeah, this this is going to be an ugly offseason for Shady. And even though... Pico Alonso didn't have a great first season in Philadelphia. This shows that maybe cutting cutting ties with, with Shady, Sean McCoy might not have been the uh, the worst, the dumbest move in the world. Yeah, that will do it for us. Thank you to all of our guests. We had OwlScoop.com writer John DiCarlo. You can follow him on Twitter at OwlScoop underscore com. And then we had Matt Lombardo from NJ.com. Follow him on Twitter at Matt Lombardo nine seven five. We will be back next week discussing all things sports. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. Follow me on Twitter at Pat underscore Egan. And you can follow me, Charlie O'Connor, on Twitter at BSH underscore Charlie. We will talk to you guys next week. This is who we feel.